Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 124, recorded May 9th, 2013. So for our 60th 90s episode, we get a little bit of Next Generation and a little bit of Deep Space Nine with Next Generation Specials number two and Deep Space Nine one-shot number one entitled Lightstorm. Right, so we've got a special and a one-off. Right, and to be honest, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to have a lot of uh, Next Generation Deep Space Nine crossover, because starting next week, we do the miniseries Next Gen Deep Space Nine crossover that Malibu Comics and DC did. Yes, and I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, We were teased with a possible crossover in the not-too-distant past, where they uh, hinted that the Enterprise was the only ship in distance, right. but it was too far away to uh, be of help. So. Right. This time, they'll actually get together. The promise, fu- the promise fulfilled. Right. And another good thing about uh, these, you know, the three stories in the Next Generation special and the larger story in the Deep Space Nine issue is that these stories not only tie in with episodes and movies of all three franchises, but they also tie in with comic books that have already been released by DC Comics and Malibu Comics. So it's kind right. of this great merging of all this other media into one story exactly and it's almost like a game to see how good your trivia is because if you really do have to have uh, seen a lot of episodes tv shows uh read books comic books and uh had all this stuff in your back pocket for you to follow all the nuances however they still wrote it so you didn't have to have exposure to all these but it helps and right. it's it's nice knowing where all the references are coming from. Right. And because we've already been reading them in order up to this point, we and hopefully the listeners will know, okay, that's a tie-in with this book or that book. But if you were reading them just off the shelf and you didn't necessarily get every single issue, I could see that it would be hard to know what exactly they were talking about at at certain points. Right. And these books, for whatever reason, don't use the, um, you know, the asterisk that says, you know, this is a reference to issue number blah, 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 you know, right. that uh, is was pretty common in the 90s. So mm-hmm. I don't know why none of these stories actually do that. So they just uh, hope, hope you know what we're talking about because we're going with it. Right. <laughs> so and, and again, I enjoyed it. I liked it a lot. Yeah, me too. They're all very good stories. Some are better than others, but they're all pretty good. Right, right. Well, you want to just jump into it then? We'll uh, start with Next Generation Special number two. Sounds good. All right. As I said earlier, it's broken out into three stories. So the first story is entitled The Choice, and its writer was Michael Jan Friedman. Penciler is Gordon Purcell. Inker is Terry Pallett. Letterer is Bob Panaha. Colorist Rick Taylor. And editor is Margaret Clark. The cover of the whole book shows Ro Lauren crouching on a pile of rubble of some sort. She is looking just past the reader's left shoulder with a tricorder in her hand. 
Behind her, we see Jordy and Riker, and they're looking up at the young ensign with what might be like awe on their face. So the story starts off in the Enterprise transporter room. The transporter chief warns the away team of an upcoming plasma storm near the location of their beam-in. They will only have about half an hour to complete their mission before the storm hits. Riker is confident with his crew that that will be plenty of time. With that, Riker, Geordi, Rowe, and three other crew members beam down. The team materialize inside of the wreckage of a destroyed, unmanned observatory. Scans of the debris show that this can be only one of three known species due to the type of disruptor energy. It can either be the Orlasiums, Arescue, or the Seraphimi. Roe is startled by the mention of the Seraphimi, and then steps away from the group to gather her thoughts. With that, Jordy and Riker have a discussion, and they recall that Roe once had a run-in with the Seraphimi before she was assigned to the Enterprise. Roe was looking out at the planet's landscape, and recalls that run-in all too well. We flash to many years ago. Roe Lauren is an ensign and is wearing a season one uniform along with all of her other shipmates. They are on a planet much like the one that Roe's on now, helping out some colonists who were just attacked by Seraphimi terrorists. As she and her commander are discussing the tactics of the terrorists, they are attacked themselves. Commander Wade is able to stun the closest one, but there's just too many of them. They seem to have some sort of personal cloaking device and are popping up everywhere. A security officer is able to transmit a certain frequency that knocks out the cloaks, and the Federation crew are forced to fall back. Commander Wade feels like they could flank the attackers. He leaves Roe and the security officer to stay at the fallback location and to fire so that the attackers do not know that most of the crew are no longer there. Roe and the other woman seem to be doing a great job at stunning the terrorists. In fact, soon all opposition stops. Scans show that all the Seraphimi are in some sort of healing trance. Roe knows that in this state that they are very vulnerable, and she's worried that Wade and the attack team will not notice that they're in this hibernation state and stun them. And in this state, even a stun can kill them. Roe is able to see Wade on a ledge, and he's aiming a shot down at the aliens. He's not able to tell that they're asleep or if they're laying there lining up a shot on Roe. She tries to stop him, but he cannot see her. Seeing no other option, she fires at Wade and stuns him in order to save the alien's life. As Wade falls to the ground, all the aliens jump up and resume their attack. It was all a ruse, and Roe fell for it. In the end, the rest of the crew did overtake the aliens, but Wade is injured, if not killed, by the aliens continuing to attack his unconscious body. Roe is brought up on charges and sentenced to a prison until she was released much later by Admiral Kennelly when she was assigned to the Enterprise. Back in the present, Roe is snapped out of her thoughts as she is attacked by cloaked aliens. It is the Seraphimi after all. The Enterprise crew fall back and Riker suggests that they use the same maneuver that Wade attempted, 
Roe and Jordy are left back as Riker and the rest of the crew flank the attackers. As this is happening, the plasma storm rolls in and the first lightning strike hits the ground not too far away. Jordy's scans show that all of the aliens are in healing trances. Roe now has to weigh the options. Is this another ruse as the one she fell for years ago, or were they really injured by the plasma strike? She sees Riker up on a ledge, lining up his shot, and again she jumps out and fires at her commander. This time the aliens do not attack. They are indeed injured. Worf, Dr. Crusher, and more crew members from the Enterprise beam down to round up all of the aliens and arrest them. Later in the ship, Riker has a meeting with Roe. She assumes that she's going to be brought up on charges again. She is surprised that he actually is commending her for taking the risk that saved the lives of all the injured aliens. The end. Yes. So, what an interesting position to be in. Uh, Not only once, but twice. Well, exactly. So, <laughs> so here you are, put in a position where you're having to make the same decision, but where the decision you made previously in the same scenario almost ended your career and put you in prison this time it could end up being exactly the right thing to do and you got to go with your gut right but 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 quite frankly in the first case there was phaser fire so the seraphimi could have like said okay they keep firing at us let's do this but in this case it's a plasma strike you know the seraphimi were not not expecting that right so it's like i if it was a ruse they would have had to have been quite clever thinking and quick thinking to take advantage of the situation that Mother Nature gave them. Right, but wasn't Jordy and... I mean, Jordy and Roe were shooting at him, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I think so. But I thought it was the plasma strike that really got him uh, knocked out. Right. So. But I wasn't sure if the plasma strike was just, you know, uh, way off to the side and, and they were still... Right. Yep. You you knew but, once you shot Riker that it was all gonna work out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that it was it was legit. Right. Because, you know, Roe will be seen around there in season seven when she exactly. gets kicked off. But the thing the, the funny thing is if she wasn't right, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> she would have been rightly uh hung hung out to dry. Anyway. Indeed. Indeed. Indeed, rightly so. I, I always love seeing Ro Lauren. I, I liked it when she was on this on the on the ship. So I, I like this story in that regards, but that you're telling the same story twice, uh, with two different outcomes. Uh, right. It was a little <laughs> a little uh convenient hmm. that the same scenario happened twice to the same person. Oh yeah, completely. Completely convenient. And uh, and these Seraphami, it's like these guys are obvious, obviously nasty. Obviously, I mean they're constantly fighting. They look fearsome. They've constantly got their mouths open every time they fire their weapons. They're obviously nasty guys. <laughs> if you have the comic book and look at the art, every time they attack, they're like, Aah! you know, they're like, uh, you know, like Braveheart or whatever. You know, everybody's like going nuts. So the, these guys are not nice. So it's nice of Roe to be nice about them, but right. really, these guys are kind of jerks. 
Right, and they they already attacked the colonists. They've already you know yep. attacked this station. Yep. So I mean, if the commander did take out one or two of them before he realized that they're in this healing trance, uh, he kind of brought it on themselves. Exactly. I mean, I agree with her in that you know you shouldn't purposely kill them, but they are trying to kill you, and just because they happen to be in a healing trance. Uh, Right when you're going to shoot him, I don't know if that necessarily warrants shooting your commanding officer. <laughs> <laughs> Who's going to be writing your review? Remember that. <laughs> so did you think Commander Wade died? Because when they he, pick up his body, the, the Seraph Amy show are shown yeah. picking up his body, he, he looks like he might be dead. Yeah, he looks in really bad shape. I mean, the, the one Seraphami is pull, pulling him up in the air, holding him over his head, and his uniform is all tattered. And uh, his eyes are closed, right? Because he's right. Out of, yeah. unconscious? Yep. So, again, an unconscious foe, and these guys are messing with him like that. Yeah. It's like, these guys are not good. I-, I thought that was a little ironic that Wade is unconscious, yet they have no qualms to keep attacking him. Right. When she's trying to stop, when she was trying to stop him from attacking the unconscious Seraphimi. It was kind of right. like, yeah, you... You really messed up. But what what I thought was weird is they never say what happened to Commander Wade. No. I thought, you know, so, during yeah, the court, when she's in the court, would they say, you know, he is able to recover or exactly. he's dead. But I'm going with he's dead. He looks dead. <sighs> he looks dead there, but you don't know. Oh, no. Yeah. But if he was dead, then, well, I say he's not dead, but that's you, just you the optimist. That's just the optimist in me. All right. So I like the attention to detail as far as putting them in season one uniforms. So this mm-hmm. must have happened around that time. Right. I thought that was good. Yep. Although yeah. I'm not the biggest fan of season one uniforms. No. they're Well, as you have called them before, they're pajamas. <laughs> they are pajamas. And, and if I remember correctly... It was um, Roddenberry that liked that unitard look or something. Somehow he thought that was like a futuristic, cool thing. Um, right. Where I'm glad they, they 86'd it <laughs> All right. with the newer uniforms because they look much better. And I think Frakes had said in the past, it's a lot easier to go to the washroom with oh, the newer yeah. uniforms. So. Well, and, you know, you don't have to have the uniform tailor-made for every single person. Because yeah. you know, not everybody's body is the same length from, you know, the the crotch to their shoulders. So yep. if you're putting on a suit that is just a little too short, you're now a hunchback, and that can't be good for your posture. Yeah, and we know that we need good posture with our superior Starfleet folk. Well, I'm just talking about being comfortable. You don't want to be hunched all over because your suit's too small. Yeah. Yep. Well, and the women too. What if one woman has a little more <laughs> the unitard is not the way to go exactly the pants and shirt thing has worked for a very long time thousands of, of years so that's really the way to go exactly yeah. all right let's see okay so the seraphami have personal cloaks cool very convenient it's like uh you know we're we're starfleet r&d it's like if they've got personal cloaks well, why don't we have personal cloaks? It's like the ships. Yeah, I, I know they came up with a lame excuse why Starfleet ships don't have cloaks prior to the Defiant coming along. Right. But 
But it's like, come on! If they can do personal cloaks, or even personal shielding, I think that should be standard. You go down with a phaser, a tricorder, and a personal shield or cloak or something. I don't know. Right. We now, always have the worst equipment. Anyway. Uh, we're the worst physically, and we have the worst equipment. Exactly. But somehow we always win. Every time. That human spirit. There you go. No, and I thought it was funny that, you know, there was that episode where Roe and Jordy were personally cloaked. Yeah. And then I thought it was funny that, you uh, know, they're the main characters in this story as far as... Well, were, were they cloaked or slightly out of phase? What? Well, it was a cloaking... I thought it was a cloaking uh, mishap. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because it was those two and a Romulan. Yeah, right. So they were a little out of phase or something, right? Yeah. But I think it was a cloaking... Accident. Okay. Accident right. of some sort. Gotcha. So, no, I agree. Uh, yeah. And in regards to your personal shielding thing, that's that's one of the things I really liked about uh, Star Trek Voyager Elite Squad. Was that right. what it was called? Yeah, the game. The game. Well, it, it wasn't Elite. I don't think it was Elite Squad. It was definitely Elite. I forgot what the rest of it was, though. Uh, what was it called? Uh, Star Trek Elite Force. Elite Force, right. Because yeah. I just so happened to have the game CD on my desk. And I have the PlayStation 2 box right there. There you go. Elite Force 2 is the particular one I have. Yes. Yeah, yeah so, so uh, right. yeah, I liked that, that it had the shield generator and it had like a little pattern buffer so that they could just like beam in and out what weapons they, or equipment they needed at a given time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like that. That that was the uh, – whether you call – from Doom days or Quake days or whatever the first-person shooter was – how do you carry around all these weapons? Well, <laughs> I thought Elise Force had a very high-tech uh, answer to that. Right. I loved it. Yeah. That was pretty good. Anyway. So, uh, oh, oh, the other thing I wanted to mention is, so we don't have cl- personal cloaks, we don't have personal shielding, and we must run around in red uniforms. It's like, <laughs> come on. Okay. Red or gold. Well, yeah, but I, I thought Both I would Both things use... that just blend in with the natural vegetation. Exactly. I, I thought I would go with red to really uh, hammer my point home. Right. Well, yes. Yeah, I, I've always had a problem with the, the color choices of the uniforms. Right. That's why I thought the uniform colors they went to in the later Next Gen movies, the gray, mm-hmm. with only right. like the collar or the... The, well, the undershirt. Exactly. Kind of thing. Yep. Being colored, I thought that w- made so much more sense. Yeah, I really like those those uniforms. Right. Indeed. And that's all I have to say about this one. All right, good. All right, so the next story in this special is called Cry Vengeance by Chris Claremont, and art is by Chris Wesnack and Jerome Moore, and lettered by Bob Panaha, colored by Tom McCraw, and edited by Margaret Clark. So there's no cover. The story starts with a woman in tattered Klingon attire fighting with another Klingon using batleths. Uh, the two warriors each are bloodied by some glancing blows. And we see that there's several other Klingons watching the two combatants. We flash to another time. The woman is seen in normal civilian clothing, unbruised, and she's meeting with Picard. She introduces herself as Colleen McMurphy. 
she has a rarely seen travel pass that allows her to hitchhike onto any Federation ship she wants. Picard said that he's pleased to have her on board since she recently was able to fight off two Klingon assassins who were trying to get Alexander. She says she was just doing what she had to do, and she does not seem to take too kindly to the compliments. Later, Colleen is in her quarters and unpacking when Alexander arrives. He gives her a flower as a gift for saving his life. She says that it's an interesting blending of human and Klingon traditions. A Klingon gift would normally have been a weapon. Once Alexander leaves, she transmits something covertly to Quonos. Sometime later, Riker arrives to her quarters and introduces himself. He also invites her to a poker game that they'll be having later that evening. Flashback to Colleen fighting the Klingon. The battle is fierce and we see red and purple blood freely spread out around the combat area. We now see that perhaps a hundred Klingons are standing in a circle watching this event. On the bridge, Worf receives an emergency call from his son. Alexander says that he went to the holodeck and found human blood all over it. He knows that Colleen was the last one to use it and is worried that perhaps she's hurt. Worf and Dr. Crusher hurry to Colleen's quarters. As they ring the door chime, we see that Colleen is on the floor with huge blood spots on her clothing. Just as Crusher is about to perform an emergency door open command, Colleen opens the door and she's wearing a robe and a towel on her head. She says that she was just in the shower. Worf asks her about the blood. She says that she hit her nose while she was on the holodeck and had one heck of a nosebleed. She agrees to stop by sickbay a little bit later and get checked out, just in case. Once they leave, Colleen takes off the robe and tells herself that she hates lying to them, and then she uses a bat lift to slice through her blood-stained clothes. Back to the fight, Colleen is able to land some very good blows to the Klingon, and she thinks to herself that she was trained by the best. In the Enterprise holodeck, Colleen and Riker are enjoying a barn party. They dance, they play music, and then they tumble into the hay for something a bit more serious when Riker is contacted and ordered to the bridge. Riker and Colleen both arrive at the bridge, and Worf informs them that they are surrounded by Klingon ships. The commander of the Klingon fleet is none other than Kern, Worf's brother. He demands that they turn over Colleen McMurphy at once. Picard is able to buy a little time, and the crew meet in the conference room to discuss their options and the motivations of the Klingons. They do not think it is related to the Klingons that attacked Alexander, since those were sent by the Dumas sisters, and that clan is being shunned by the Empire. Worf is also concerned about a ceremonial weapon he found in her room. It is only meant for a leader of a clan. Before a consensus can be made, a female Romulan suddenly beams aboard the ship. Picard seems to know who she is and calls her Takur. Takur then informs the crew that the woman they know as Colleen McMurphy is actually Jamie Finney. We flash back to the fight. Colleen slash Jamie and the Klingon, who is now identified as Galron, are tired and injured. They both use the last of the reserves for one final attack. 
as their batlets swing down at each other, the camera kind of pans over a little bit, and we see that Picard, Worf, and Takur are also in attendance. And perhaps they're even being splattered with blood from that final attack. But whose blood was it? On the holodeck, the crew are watching a hollow recording of events as Takur informs the crew who the two women are. The recording shows Kirk's Enterprise at the end of the events from the comic Debt of Honor. The smooth-headed Klingon Kor has invited Jamie to join his ship. She accepts. Later, the smooth-headed Klingons are forced into exile. Kor is offered an audience with the Chancellor. He and Jamie beam over for the meeting at an undisclosed planet. As they are waiting, their ship in orbit is destroyed. A bumpy-headed Klingon beams down and kills Kor by shooting him in the back. He captures Jamie and has her chained up in some sort of dungeon. Soon, Takur and a crewman beam in and rescue her. But the crewman is killed in the process. The crewman was named Colin McMurphy. Jamie then tells them that her plan was to challenge Galron for the honor of Kor and all of the smooth-headed Klingons. Picard is reluctant to allow this, but Worf is able to sway him, and they agree to allow her to go to Quonos. Later, Jamie is visited by Alexander. He does not understand why she's doing this. She tells him that it's for the honor of the Klingons, who have been erased from Klingon history due to, their, due to the difference in appearance. Worf then also pays her a visit. She tells him that she has retained her youthful appearance and physique due to Vulcan disciplines taught to her by Spock. And also a lot of yoga. He tries to talk her out of it, but she says that she's doing it for the needs of the many that consists of the ghosts and the generations yet to be born. Back to the fight, Galron scores the final blow and Jamie is down. Galron commends her and says that she is a true Klingon. Jamie says that she is a human with her dying breath. Galron then tells all the Klingons present that if such a fine warrior could come from Kor's clan, then perhaps they were indeed Klingons, and will be remembered and honored as such. And then the final shot shows Riker, Worf, and Alexander aboard the Enterprise with their heads bent back, performing the Klingon death howl in Jamie's memory. That was a very dense story. Human! Yes, it was. It was. There was a lot going on there. And you really, it's really hard to, to I, I can understand how that would be very hard to synopsize. You know, <laughs> caught up a lot. Yeah. But hopefully I got the gist of it. Oh, yeah. Because it, 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 it kind of jumps back and forth a little bit in time. And right. And there's an awful lot of stuff going on. And I, I found the first read of it a little confusing. <laughs> you know, until I got to the end. And then went right. back and reread a few of the individual parts that I was kind of fuzzy on. Right. But, yeah. It's, it's a good story. Right. And, and I like how they play with you in that, you know, right from the beginning, you know that she attacked or was attacked by two Klingons. So during all the flashbacks, you keep right. thinking that, oh, this is a flashback of that attack on Alexander. And it's not until you find out that she's really Jamie Finney that you're like, oh, that's Galron and this is the future. 
Exactly. It was very important to keep all the different uh, <laughs> Klingons she was fighting straight. Right. But I, I enjoyed it. Um, I, I know that we did Dead of Honor uh, a few months back. We had uh, Brian in to uh, uh, guest host with us on that ep- on that issue, and mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed that issue. Hopefully, you know, when we were reviewing it, I wasn't you know sounding too negative because I thought it was a good issue. It was just like this story, very dense. Mm-hmm. And in that one, I thought that they tried to do a little too much. You know, tying in a whole bunch of loose ends that didn't necessarily need to be all tied together. Right. This one didn't, you know, it had that, but not as much. So I didn't feel like, oh, you're having this person in here just to have that person because you want to show that, yeah, I remember that episode too. Right. Uh, I really liked this issue. I thought it was good. Yeah. I, I wish they could have used Takur a little more uh, because I'm really curious about her lineage. But aside from that, I don't have any complaints on this issue. Half Romulan and half Klingon. Well, That's no, what she is. She says she's half. She says in this that she's half Vulcan and half Romulan. But oh, I Vulcan. thought that it was what? kind of. I thought it was kind of implied in mm. Dead of Honor that she's actually Kirk's daughter, and that's why her name. Oh, is right, Kirk. right, 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 right. Okay, now I remember who she. Okay, so there's a tie-in that I forgot. Yes. Okay. So oh, Kirk, you didn't catch that's that. That's funny. Was- so there's yet a, there's yet a, yet another tie-in that uh, that was out there that I didn't even get until just now. Thank right. you. Right. So in Dead of Honor, Takur keeps showing up in Kirk's life, and then in that final battle, um, she and uh, she's there when Jamie is is invited to go with Kor to yeah learn the Klingon ways. Yeah. Anyway, so which was also written by Cl- Chris Claremont, who who wrote this one. So okay, and that makes perfect sense that he would continue on the story that he had set up in the previous story. Right, and it did happen. I, I liked it. I did, and it was. I, I thought the writing style was different, interesting, dark, pretty realistic in most things, but in other cases. You know, kind of artsy fartsy in the fact that you know they were really showing a lot of very dark panels and 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 like reflections of Jamie's troubled face and all those kind of things. Uh, unique art style, dark art style, and I think it was appropriate for the book. And I I got after I got used to it, I, I liked it. Right. Yeah. No, I, I liked it, and all the all the fight scenes. You know the the. You know, they'll have like a two-page fight scene every so often mm-hmm. yeah. of the Galron fight. I, right. I like how behind the panel, instead of just normal white, it's like blood spatters to yeah. really emphasize that this is a fight to the finish. Right. Yeah, I, and I thought thing, it was well done. Yeah, and Galron is a good guy. So it was like, I mean, mostly. Right. In Next Gen. And as I'm reading this thing, it's like... What? Why is he fighting? Why is he fighting Gowron again? I mean, he has nothing to do with the Duras. He's an enemy of the Duras clan. And then there is a little part that she says, because he is in the same role, the Chancellor of the High Council or whatever. That's why she's debt bound to fight Gowron. Right. Because uh, his descendant or a, a previous holder of that position is the one that gave the okay to to kill. Uh, her captain, I'm forgetting the name. Core. Core. There you right. go. 
Right. Yeah, I'm with you because you know, going by what we know of Galron, if if she would have said, you know, I'm here to, you know, uh, make right for the smooth-headed Klingons, you know, I, I could see Galron saying, oh yeah, I 100% agree with you. <laughs> but you know, because they're Klingons, they still have to fight to the death. Right. But the whole time I'm reading, I'm like, well, Galron can't die. Uh, so Jamie's obviously going to be the one that dies, and if she dies, he still has to, you know, because we know how Galron is, he's still going to have to, you know, honor Kor, even though technically he won the fight and d- doesn't have to. Yeah. And so when that happens, you're like, yeah, that's that's how that had to end. Right. But you don't feel like you got cheated. It was still good. Yeah. And something I really missed on in the uh, issue is we didn't get to see Galron's bulging eyes. <laughs> nope. That actor kind of squinted. <laughs> you don't see him from, from the from the proper angle. And that's I thought that's one thing I always loved about that actor who played Galron. Right. Is he just had these bulging Marty Feldman eyes, but <laughs> but that made him look so much more intense or something. It's like oh yeah yeah. Right. When you whenever I saw him in other movies, like he was in The Mask, and he's been in mm-hmm. some other movies. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just this little white guy with these bulging eyes, and he's always like for comic relief. But when he's Galron, you know, he's so intense, and that brow <laughs> makes it look like you know his his eyes are shadowed, and he's just. <laughs> This really intense person, and then exactly. when he's when he's not, he's just this blonde-haired, blue-eyed white guy with these big bulging eyes. <laughs> oh, I, I I've got to go back and watch the mask then. Uh, yeah, he's one of the the main henchmen that tries to stop the mask. Oh, cool. Okay, let's go back and look. Okay, so I I'm wondering about that Colin McMurphy guy who ended up dying to save right. Finny. Right. First off, I don't know who Colin McMurphy is. If if he was referred to in one of the other books, then that would be interesting to know, but I don't know that. He just appears to be a Starfleet guy or something, maybe, mm-hmm. a human, mm-hmm. who pops up with DeKirk to save Colleen, and it's like or, – or Jamie, rather – and it's like, well, what's the what's the motivation here? And and she ends up she takes on the name McMurphy because were were they close at some point before she became a Klingon? I mean, she, she was gone for twenty years, right? As the first officer of Corps, so it's like, what's the motivation for that guy to risk his life twenty plus years later in trying to rescue her? Right, I agree. Yeah, and why does Takur have human crew members at all? I mean, the mm. I, I, only reason why I mentioned the name in the synopsis is because that's obviously she's honoring him by calling herself Colleen McMurphy later. I agree. It's just, was there something more going on there? I mean, obviously they were never married. No. Um, and he's risking his life for her. And she act, doesn't doesn't he actually call her by her first name? Um, so it doesn't seem like he's just a random crew member of Takur, uh, along on a mission. Yeah, I, I thought he was just with Takur along on a mission, and, and Takur knew who she was, and you know she might have given him a heads up that, hey, we're going to go save this woman named Jamie. Huh. But you're right, uh, I don't know, there might have been more to it. Yeah. Anyway, because she knows him, because he, he gets shot, 
dies, and then she says, Colin. Yep. And uh, he hadn't introduced himself yet, so I don't know. Good point. Well, uh, might have to go relook at Dead of Honor here in a minute to see if maybe he's in there. Right. Oh, so. the layers. The layers upon layers. <laughs> but uh, I have one beef with the story, and then I have one kind of uh, nitpick. The beef I have is why has she not aged? She was a little girl yeah. in uh, Kirk's time, you know, when when he's brought up on charges for well, maybe like a teenager her or something. She was a teenager, yeah, right? Yeah. And then right. in Dead of Honor, which is set right after Star Trek Four, she's an adult. She's part of Starfleet, you know. And then this is eighty, seventy years later, and she still looks the same, and and she has that little offhand remark that Spock taught her a some sort of mental discipline and yoga and I'm yeah. just like oh come on yeah well I think the yoga thing was a joke but uh, I completely agree now, now I will also say that in many of the drawings of her face you can tell she's aged a bit but still uh, you know she's got to be a hundred plus years old right right so it's. I completely agree with you. I could not. Ag- I could not agree with you more. Right. So I didn't like that. Um, and I didn't. I mean, and, and this next one is. They hadn't done it yet, but he kills off Core, which at the time that's that would have fit because Core hadn't come back on Deep Space Nine yet. Right. But because eventually Core does show back up on Deep Space Nine with the bumpy head with no explanation. Yep. Uh, yep. That, Exactly. That obviously contradicts this quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, and and I do like for all the times they have someone has attempted to explain the bumpy versus smooth-headed uh, Klingons. I think this is one of the explanations, or the way they handled it anyway in this issue, that works the best. Absolutely, I I like it's, it. It's 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 very plausible in this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I like that. Yeah, absolutely. I thought they did a great job. I, yeah. I I like this explanation better than the we all got a shot and return, retained our bumpy headedness. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, th- th- this one makes more sense, right? Um, yeah. And the last thing I have to say is where most of the references are pretty good, they make sense. I thought the point where <laughs> Riker is having his wild evening uh, with Jamie. Mm-hmm. Is and he and they make a little joke about Riker saying something about playing or something, and then he ends up playing the trombone, and she's like 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 slinkily laying on top of a piano or something. I thought that was incredibly forced, and I, and I think they were trying for a joke, but you know I thought it was totally throwaway that they would show Riker with a trombone. But well, I thought it was just showing that. You know, from the time that they got there to the time that they jump into the hay, mm-hmm. that a lot of time has passed. Yeah. That, you know, they did dance for a long time. They did yeah. play music while she was lounging on a piano for a long time. You know, I, I, I don't know what the joke would be. <laughs> if music's the food for love, McMurphy, play on. And then the next and shot then shows, the next him panel the shows him playing the trombone. <laughs> so that was the joke, I, I think. At least I think it was a joke. I'm not laughing. You're laughing. I'm laughing. laughing that, that, that there's supposed to be a joke there because I don't see it. 
Oh well, okay, but do you see where they might they might be trying for a joke? I guess I didn't at the time. I thought it was just his his little uh, you know his transition into I'm going to woo you with my trombone skill. <laughs> Ah, yeah. Well, I I think it was more like they're just really enjoying themselves as opposed to that actually being a a, a sexual aphrodisiac. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't think that either. (laughs) Anyway. Okay, good good story. They were about to do something in the hay, let's just say that. They were before they were interrupted by the call of Riker to the the bridge. Which I thought was funny that Jamie just tags along. So if you're with... If you're with somebody of high rank and they get called to the bridge, you can just go too. <laughs> I guess so. That's funny. And then just Troy's over there, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, Riker's like, ah, yeah, yeah. It's, it just seems a little... Because I know they're not dating, but still. Right. Yeah, and as far as the art goes, I mean, there on page 11 was probably my least favorite shot of anybody, um, mm-hmm. where it shows... Jamie kind of in the hay and, and Riker's all surprised that he's getting a red alert. Oh, yeah. It's a very unflattering picture of Jamie. Yeah. Where every other shot, she looks fantastic. Well, there are some shots she looks damn fantastic. But then there are some other ones, like on page five, where where Riker invites her to the, the card game. And then she says, I'd like that very much. Or I'd like that, Will, very much. And then it's like she's got a devil look on her face. Yeah, she looks pissed off. She looks royally pissed off. But that's so, that's when you're still not sure what, what she is, because she just made exactly. a, a covert call to Quono, so you don't know, is she a spy? What's going on? Exactly. But I, I assume that's the Klingon in her now, where she sees, uh, oh, there's a chance for competition. Well, right. I'm going to decimate your ass, pal. Uh, yeah, pardon me. Possibly. Your butt, pal. I mean, is that what that's trying to get across? Because the look on her face is extremely stern. I yes. mean, if she was like, if she was like my teacher, and I was a student, and I did something wrong, and I had a look like that, I'd be like, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I agree with you. It's very stern. Very stern. All right. All right. Anything else? That's it. I did hate that corn got shot in the back. I don't know if I mentioned that. Oh, I hate that too. But I think it was unexpected. I think it had a uh, a shock value to it, and I think the way they drew it, where uh, Kor's face is kind of like all black, mm-hmm. blacked out or something, um, I thought that was really because it almost it, it his face, his head is literally all blacked out like a charcoal briquette, right. even though you can see the laser beam going through like his his left chest, right, but it looks like like he's like his his entire head has been fried into a charcoal briquette. Right. So it's like, I, I don't know how all that happened, but it looks cool. Yeah, it looks cool, and obviously it would uh, be dishonorable for him to die that way. So, yeah. again, it gave her it gave her some uh, motivation. Right. Now, very well story, uh, very well written story. I really enjoyed this one. Yep. Yeah. And if anybody likes uh, Dead of Honor, I definitely think this is a worthy sequel to that yep all right shall we go on to the next one please all right it's entitled out of time michael jan friedman is the writer penciler is steve Irwin. inker is charles barnett 
Letterer is Bob Panaha. Colorist, Dave Graffy. And editor is Margaret Clark. This story starts off with Captain Morgan Batson of the USS Bozeman. And he's talking to a counselor about not fitting in with this timeline. He's still wearing his Wrath of Khan uniform, so that might have something to do with why you're not fitting in with this timeline, but let's just keep going with it. Uh, he <laughs> says, what was that? I'm laughing. <laughs> I just think it's funny. <laughs> I'm having trouble fitting in. I still dress like I did 100 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be the first thing if I was the counselor. I would say, you know what? Update your clothes. There you go. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> All right, so... Uh, Batson says that the Bozeman was decommissioned due to being so far out of date. In a huff, Batson leaves the counselor. The counselor, who we learn is named Counselor Bailey, is then contacted by none other than Counselor Troy. She tells them that the special visitors she's arranged should be arriving soon to speak with Batson. Batson is shown going to a bar. Uh, he gets frustrated uh, with being unneeded and out of sync with the times. He returns to his quarters where he slams his fist into a statue of out of frustration. Then there's a ping at the door. When he opens it, it's none other than Montgomery Scott. The old engineer says that the two of them might have a thing or two to talk about. The end. Very short story. Yes, very short. And I really wish this one was longer because I like the idea of Batson and Montgomery getting together. Yeah, here's another good example of what happened to a character that you saw briefly in the TV show, or comic, in this case TV show, mm -hmm. and, you're, and, and you might have wondered, well, what's going to happen next to uh, Kelsey Grammer? <laughs> and his whole crew. I do think it's funny that they've, they've forgotten the whole crew. I mean, there's a whole crew of people that... Well, are, yeah, I know, but this is a really short story. <laughs> I mean, right. if, if, if it was a full-size issue then maybe they could <laughs> look into other people but right 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 yeah no i really like the the whole batson story and, and if you do too um i recommend you reading star trek the next generation novel by michael jan friedman entitled ship of the line i think that's mm -hmm. what it's called it's based after generation so the enterprise d is destroyed and they're creating the first sovereign class ship and it's going oh, cool. to be the Enterprise E. Cool. Batson ends up kind of hijacking it, and I mean, there's a whole story that that Batson and the crew of the the Bozeman basically end up hijacking it for some mission that they feel is worthy. And at the end, the first Sovereign class ship ends up being rechristened the Bozeman, and then you know the Enterprise is the second Sovereign class ship. It's it's is, a very good wait story. Wait a minute. Is that? It, that's not consistent with First Contact, though, is it? Actually, it, it is consistent with First Contact in that when uh, when they're listening to the Federation attacking that Borg cube, yeah, they talk about how the U.S. Bozeman is there and, and is actually destroyed, I think. So it kind of ties in with that, that that is not the old... 100-year-old Bozeman, that's uh, the newly christened Sovereign-class Bozeman. Okay, but you'd have no... Well, okay, so you'd have no idea about that just watching the movie. But I thought when Jordy was, says something about, we're the most advanced starship in the fleet, we should be on the front line. I thought right. he was basically 
I thought he was saying that we're the first, we're the only sovereign class ship. I don't know. No, they're the second one that's even more – it's sovereign 1.0. I mean 1.2. 1.1? 1.1. There you go. Okay. It's sovereign (laughs) 1.1. Okay. Okay. I'm a little confused, but – Yeah, no, it's – it's expanded universe stuff, so all sure, gets a sure. fuzzy. Okay, but that's fine. It's a very good story. I, I highly recommend you uh, reading that one. So they only made one of the Sovereign Class 1.0s, and it was rechristened the Bozeman. Right. Okay, I don't want to belabor this, but okay, <laughs> I <guess> cool. So. <laughs> it's I, been, dude, it's been what, 15 years since I read that book, so okay, that's, that's fine. the fact that I even remember the name of it, I'm giving myself kudos for. Oh, that's, that's great. <laughs> so, um... And and by the way, I love ships. I love uh, Star Trek ships. So when when you said the title was Ship of the Line, it was like yeah, like the title. Right. Yeah, you should definitely uh, give it a read. Uh, uh. Um, it's it's worth a look. There was also another book uh, that has Bozeman or not Bozeman, but Batson and Montgomery Scott in it called mm-hmm. um, Engines of Destiny. I think is the title. Uh, uh-huh. I might be wrong on that one, and I don't remember who the author is. But in that one. It starts off with a like gathering of all these people who've who are in the next generation timeline, like mm-hmm. some somewhere in the movie era, and they're you know displaced from time. So Montgomery's there, the crew of the Bozeman there, um, other folks that have uh, time traveled are there. I think even uh, a, a old what was her name from Star Trek Four? I think she's actually there as as a very old woman. Oh, okay. Uh, what was her name? The Doctor? Yeah. Um, da, 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 da. I don't remember. If it comes to me, I'll Seventh I'll Heaven Woman. Yeah, exactly, her. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that that was also a nice little tie-in. Uh, those are the only three times that I can think that uh, Batson has reappeared. Right. But anyways, very short story. Not necessarily uh, a great story because I think they could have added so much more to it. They could have. Kind of wish they would have made that first story a little shorter and this one a little longer, but but who am I just to tell DC Comics what to do? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think of the three, the first mm, uh, mm, – well, the second one was clearly the best of the three. Right. And then the first one was good, and then this was, the last one was probably my third favorite, only it's just because of the shortness of it. Right. Uh, I, I would have – I would have been very interested in going with what you just suggested and seeing more of uh, Bateman. See right. what happens. So, anything else on this comic? Nope. We can jump on over to uh, Deep Space Nine and see how they're holding out. <laughs> yes, let's do that. Okay, so we got Malibu, Star Trek, Deep Space Nine, number one, entitled Lightstorm. Published date is December of 1994. Creative team includes the writer Mark A. Altman, Penciler Rob Davis, inker Terry Pallet, letterer Joseph Allen, color design by Ruth Yashapur, color seps by Violet Hughes with Janice Wismer, and editor is Mark Panacea. The cover shows a large fleet of purple and yellow fighter ships firing on a single Klingon battlecruiser with shields up. The heads of Commander Sisko and a Klingon are looking down upon the Klingon ship. The story opens in the Gamma Quadrant, on a desert planet that is home to the Gakora colony. Two high spire structures 
overlook many domed buildings that make up the colony. The colony exists in a sea of sand with mesas in the distance. In the colony control room, three humanoid colonists are discussing the unexpected ships that have entered orbit. They have no Federation transponders and are not responding to hails. Shortly thereafter, a vicious attack ensues on the colony by dozens of purple and yellow ships. Their large numbers are highly likely to obliterate the colony. Elsewhere in the Gamma Quadrant, Captain Cole aboard the Klingon battlecruiser Avui is filing a report to Galran. They are scouting planets as potential colony sites and military outposts. They receive a distress call from the Federation colony Gekora, and Call welcomes the break from the boring mission he is on. A colony under attack by unknown forces could bring just the honor of battle that Call craves. Katha, a female Imperial adjunct assigned to the ship to keep an eye on Call, warns him to not be too reckless in responding to this unknown situation. Later at the Kakora colony, the Klingons find a level of destruction worthy of Romulans, according to Call. They find at least one survivor, but he is so badly injured that he does not say much. They put him into cryostasis for the trip to get him medical attention from qualified human doctors. They continue the search for survivors, but are not optimistic given what they have seen thus far. Meanwhile, on Deep Space Nine, Dr. Bashir is called to infirmary for incoming casualties. The Klingons have arrived. Captain Call is in Sisko's office, bringing him up on the colony's situation and telling him about the sole survivor. Sisko thanks him and says they will find out what the survivor has to say about the colony's attackers. Call says that will be interesting information, but he and his ship will be gone by then to destroy the attackers of the Federation colony. Sisko says, hold up there, cowboy. We need to find out more about what happened before you go off blindly seeking retribution. Kahl disagrees and says that is not the Klingon way. In the infirmary, Dr. Bashir reports to the Klingon Imperial Adjunct Katha and Lieutenant Koleth that he has done everything he can for the surviving colonist. Time will tell if he will survive and tell them what they need to know about the attack. In the meantime, he invites the two Klingons to dine on Gach with him. The adjunct declines, saying she must speak to Captain Call and leaves. Lieutenant Kalleth takes the opportunity to thank Dr. Bashir for saving his life when they were recently imprisoned by Romulans. The scene shifts to Sisko's office, where Katha is stating the impossibility of making Call see the delicacy of the situation. All he sees is the opportunity for battle. The Empire has deployed adjuncts like her to all ships assigned to the Gamma Quadrant to head off misunderstandings that can all too easily occur in first contact situations with Gamma Quadrant aliens. Captain Call already has one unfortunate incident to his credit. Her job is to help him avoid any further incidents. Sisko informs Katha that Starfleet has formally requested that he be on the Avri when it returns to the Gamma Quadrant. She warns him of the potential danger. If diplomacy fails, then one ship against a force of unknown strength could fail, too. 
Lieutenant Coleth and Bashir have a man talk over drinks in Quark's bar. Coleth admits a few things about his thoughts when he thought the Romulans were going to kill him. Rather than desiring death like his Klingon warrior culture taught him, he, is, he desired to live to fight another day, a lesson Bashir had apparently succeeded in teaching the Klingon. Their man talk ends when Coleth is called to report back to the Avwi. On Sisko and Katha's way to the transporter pad, Sisko tells Dax she is coming with them and that Kira is in command. Kira tries to tell Sisko something, but he does not give her the chance. As the three are completing transport to the Avwe, Captain Call is telling Lieutenant Koloth to tell the Federation people nothing about some new information. Dax and Sisko are welcomed aboard and shown to their quarters. In their quarters, Sisko tells Dax if his suspicion that Captain Call was dishonored in his rush to judgment about the Cardassians, about them being responsible for the destruction of the Katang, he might be trying to look for this fight as a way of making up for it. Avenging the destruction of a Federation colony would do that. Not knowing what forces he would be up against, Call may not be planning to return. Their dinner over half-dead gah is interrupted when Avwi comes under fire by a large number of small purple and yellow ships. They look just like the ships that destroyed the colony. Sisko, Dax, Kal, Koleth, and Katha all get to the bridge. The helmsman reports their attacker's weaponry is quite primitive. They are barely scratching the Klingon shields. Captain Call orders them to return fire, but Sisko strongly suggests that they should try to talk to them before returning fire. Call disagrees, but with the delay caused by Sisko, Katha sends out a message to the alien ship announcing who they are, stating they mean no harm, and that the Avri is quite capable of defending itself if forced to. The carrot and the stick diplomacy in action. The alien ship stops firing and hails them. The alien commander states that they did not know they were Klingons and that they see the Klingons have captured two humans. The alien commander says he will lead them to their homeworld and terminates the transmission. Not knowing what to make of the transmission, they decide to follow the fleet of smaller ships. Knowing where the alien's homeworld is would be a distinct advantage for the Klingons. As they arrive at the alien planet, Captain Call sends a message to Gauron telling them where they are and that they are beaming down to meet the alien leader named Malak. Immediately on beaming down, the alien leader of the Maivak people orders that Sisko and Dax be imprisoned immediately. After they are taken away to an anti-gravity holding cell, Malak says it's the Klingons that alerted them to the human treachery. Captain Call defends humans as honorable beings, but Katha holds back, deciding that she wants to learn more. She asks Malik to explain what extreme crimes the human have perpetrated upon the Maivak people. Malik explains that the planet of Gakora is sacred to the Maivak people. The human colony defiled the world. Malik says the humans refused to leave when they were told what Gakora was to his people. Meanwhile, back at the station, the surviving colonist comes to and tells Bashir they have to stop the Klingons. Bashir tells him that the Klingons saved him, 
the colonist says he does not understand. But it was the Klingons that did this. Back on the alien homeworld, Captain Carl and Katha play along with Malak and his military commander named Hernai. They hate humans and end their conversation by inviting them to the execution of the two human prisoners in the morning. When Kahl and Katha are alone in their assigned quarters, Kahl states how unimpressed he is so far with the job she is doing. Kahl checks in with the ship to make sure that his transporter officer has a lock on Sisko and Dax. He does. Katha warns him that as soon as he beams them out of their cell, that Malik will end his regal treatment of them. Kahl says he will not have his honor blemished by letting the Federation people be killed by the Mivok. Katha tells him there is more going on here than he realizes. Back on the station, Dr. Bashir is informing Major Kira, Odo, and O'Brien that he has intelligence that Lursa and Bethor are behind the attacks on the Federation colony. He does not have the specifics, but he strongly suggests they dispatch a runabout to the Gamma Quadrant since Sisko and Dak are likely in danger. They all acknowledge the danger in sending a runabout into such a situation. Meanwhile, on the Avwe, Sisko and Dax are beamed aboard temporarily to discuss the situation, including the fact that Katha was sent to the Gamma Quadrant to investigate reports that Lursa and Bethor are operating there to secure valuable minerals. They discuss that the valuable minerals could be on Mivok, or more likely, on Gakora. On Gakora, Julian and O'Brien are scanning for clues as to Sisko's or the sisters' whereabouts. What they find is Lursa and Bethor with disruptors trained on them. In the chambers of Malak, Sisko, Cole, and Katha are beamed in unannounced. They interrupt Malak, who is taking a bath with a lovely lady. His wife, perhaps? They tell him Lursa and Bethor have lied to them, telling them that the Federation colony would not move in actuality when they were unaware of its importance to the Maivok people. Also, that the sisters were secretly planning to mine valuable minerals out of Gakora, out from under Maivok's noses. Malak and his military commander does not believe them and takes them all into custody. In the morning, all five of them have nooses around their necks and are about to be hung when the Avery beams all of them back, plus His Majesty Malak. They take off for Gakora at maximum warp, with dozens of Mivok ships on their tail. The inferior Mivok ships quickly fall behind. When they arrive at Gakora, they detect mining activity and beam down to that location. They come under attack almost immediately, and a firefight breaks out. Koleth takes mortal wounds, blocking a beam meant for Julian. Just as Sisko corners Lursa and Bethor in a mining cave, they beam out and their ship leaves the area at maximum warp. Back on the Avwe, Koleth is pronounced dead by Bashir. He did die well. Malak confronts Hernai, who admits he traded advanced weaponry for tech for the mining rights to Lursa and Bethor. Malak fires him as Mivok's military commander. Later, Dr. Bashir is drinking alone to Koleth, his deceased friend. Captain Call joins him for a drink of something green. Koleth catches Katha with another man and asks how she could prefer his company to his. The other man is Morn. 
Julian gives Cole the advice to tell Katha of his interest. He says he will do that after a drink or two of green. The end. Mmm, green. Mmm, green. So that's a that's a joke reference to was that a next gen? It was a uh, it was an original series joke first, and then they reused right. it for next gen. Ah, okay, okay. And they okay. also reused it uh, one other time that I know of in one of the Shatnerverse books. Oh, okay. So I, the only one I remember is the next gen with Data. Data and um, that was the that was the Montgomery one. That was Relics, right? I think so. Was that it? I don't know. I don't remember. Could have been. Yep. Yeah. It's a good joke. Eh, It's okay. It's not bad. So (laughs) did you get a R.J. Blaze Kirk vibe from this whole Captain Call and Katha thing? I I didn't, but now that you mention it, I could see that, yeah. Yeah, it it kind of seemed – because she is like – she is the non-military person – put on the ship to watch the uh, sometimes unpredictable captain, you know. Yeah, yeah. So. No, I can see that. And I do find it funny that he's so enamored with her. <laughs> well, she, she's got a she's got a healthy chest. I'll say that much. Right. Well, she's wearing the, uh, the Klingon outfit. Yeah. Outfit that I think that uh, that adds a lot to that. Ah, right. I think it and supplies co- just the right amount of support. And- exactly. And covers up a lot, too. But Yeah. yeah. No, it, it's... it's a, Yeah. It's it's uh, it's like the the Dura sisters. They they also have interesting... Oh, God. Things. Yeah, but... Yeah, so, so, so they have their breast area uh, always, like, over the top, <laughs> which is just part of their kind of... Uh, incredibly ugly yet think they're sexy kind of uh, thing going on. Oh, you think that's what they're going for? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously they think they're sexy. But from human standards. <laughs> I, I think that's that's part of their, their charm and, and humor. Okay. Every time they pop up, they're good for a few laughs as they try to, uh, you know, oh, you know be, be kind of sexy. Hmm. All right. Especially the younger one, the younger sister. Oh, you mean the sexy one? Well, she's sexier than the older one, but still. Oh, that's funny. What? That's funny. <laughs> you don't know what I'm saying? No, I, I see what you're saying. I, I never really <laughs> thought of them as being they think they're sexy. and. Uh, oh, they know it. And they know it. <laughs> anyway. Uh so anyways, uh, obviously this has a lot of ties in with Heart and, heart and Mind. Was that what it was? Um, that we did? I think so. But also this has a tie-in with Generations, right? Uh, Generations and Deep Space Nine. The Dura sisters had a couple episodes in Deep Space Nine, too. Right. Dumas, but, but, not Duras. Right. No, but, Duras. But, what is her name? Uh, well, I had to self-doubt I thought, myself. Oh, well... Okay, so... No, Duras. 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 Their their last name is Duras. Right. They're from the house Duras. Right. Right. But I I thought the mineral that they got their hands on is what they gave to Sorn in Generations to build the the missile. Oh, good point. Good point. At least I I thought that was it. I mean, they didn't come out and say that, but... Uh, Is it 
trilithium? Well, they never call it trilithium in this comic. Okay. But they don't really name what the mineral is. You're right. You're right. But if, if they did, then that really would be icing on the cake, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, good point. I did not catch that. Yeah, well. Yeah. Yeah, so they they left this, went to Soren, gave him the, the trilithium, and Generations took place. Interesting. Because they bite yes. it in Generations, right? Yes. Yeah, they're able to um, – they're able – Riker's able to take them out before the Enterprise-D goes and crashes. Right, right. Huh. Good point. I, I don't remember how they got them to drop their shields, but somehow they did. And then they're able to take them out with one photon, I think. Uh, it's not the tailpipe thing. That was Star Trek Six. Oh, I, I didn't say tailpipe. No, no, I, I'm thinking to myself. Oh, yeah. Right, it it right. was some sort of trick. Yeah, I don't – I mean, definitely they used the trick of Geordi's visor to drop the Enterprise-D shields, but well, they didn't. They I don't just used remember. the frequency so that the missiles could go through the shields. The shields were still there. Oh, you're right. To, okay. To, to muck it up even That's more, right. the shields right. are there. Somehow the torpedoes are able to go through it like they weren't. Well, I thought it was phaser fire, but – well, whatever, it doesn't matter. The main point is they had the frequencies and they got through their shields, right? So if that's true, you could just change the frequency of your, you know, do a continuous phaser blast Rotating. and just keep changing the, the yep. frequency until it punches through. That's right. Like, okay, it's 77983, woohoo. Yeah, well, how'd they pull that out of their butt in the first place when they started talking about, ooh, the frequency of the phaser fire can sometimes get through the Borg shields, personal shields or not, and yada, yada, yada. It's like, really? <laughs> you know? I mean, I, I, if you're... you Use an explosive device, and then, you know, you, you get around all this frequency stuff. Whatever. It just sounds like a bunch of techno babble, but whatever. <laughs> so I like how Katha says chui chu to initiate transport, like Kirk did in Star Trek Three. Mm. So I like that. He's Klingon though. Uh what? Katha's Klingon, right? Right. So of course that's what he would say. Well, I know that. It's it's apparently it's Klingon for transport me or whatever, beam me up. Initiate transport, whatever. But right. I just, I just kind of like how they did that. Oh, okay. Even though it makes perfect sense, I just like seeing that. Okay. It being Klingon, of course. Of course. The universal language. For Klingons, yes. For Klingons. Or unless you're using Klingonese, which yeah. is what they called it in the original series. Oh, did they? I don't yeah. remember it being think, refer- referred to, but. I think cool. Core said, you know, we'll take over your federation, and soon humans will be speaking Klingonese. Ah, uh, I can't remember would, what episode. He would say that, wouldn't he? <laughs> can't remember what episode that was. Yeah, I found it a little ridiculous when Bashir and Koloth are speaking, and then he's called back to the ship. Mm-hmm. The, the The voice says he requests the lieutenant to come back. It's like, wait a minute. So a Klingon is requesting Lieutenant Koloth to come back to the ship. It's like, you're a Klingon. You order him. Come on. What is this? I don't get it. It just seemed a little kind of, kind of wimpy for a Klingon. <laughs> well, it, but do you think – politeness is not one of the first attributes I think of when it comes to Klingons. No, but it wasn't, it wasn't the captain giving the command. It was somebody relaying the, 
the order. Well, well, I know, but it, but it's coming from a Klingon. Right, right. I thought, yeah. Yeah. Okay, and maybe because it's an underling, so they have to request because he is a lieutenant. But it just seemed a little wimpy for a Klingon. <laughs> you know, return to the ship immediately. Actually, no, it is it is Cole that's calling him. Cole. Oh, oh was Cole, it Cole? Uh, you are requested to return to the. Yeah. No, nope, oh, you're it, right. It is. It is Cole. Actually. It is Cole. Or Cole, Captain Cole. Yeah. Well, even Captain more Cole. so. Yeah, you're right. Get your butt over here, Cole. Coleth. Let's go. Hmm. Instead of, if you don't mind, could, you know, I, could you come over, please? No, <laughs> that's not very Klingon. Agreed. Yeah. So, what'd you think about that uh, waste of a page on page eight with the uh, Smash Ball or whatever they call it game but, uh, between O'Brien and and Bashir? Oh, I didn't even mention it. Uh, of course. Why would you? It's a waste no, of a page. It is. It's filler. It's total filler. Now, maybe they just wanted to, to show O'Brien actually say something, but you see him later <laughs> on the planet, uh, at the colony planet. Right. So I, I have no idea. Yeah. I mean, the whole payoff is, you know, Bashir has to leave, and then O'Brien's there, and he's like, oh, I think it's time I find a new partner. Yeah. That's that's the whole purpose of the page. I don't didn't like yeah. it. Yeah. Well, that's why I didn't even mention it. <laughs> And the other thing I didn't really like is, uh, one, I can't believe they got duped so easy, the aliens, uh, by the Dura sisters. Uh-huh. And then the whole telling of why that place is so sacred, you know, with the um, oh, knights yeah. in armor and right. somebody tried to sleep with somebody else's wife and got killed and blah, 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 blah. Yep. It's all pretty involved. Right. And, and pointless. I mean, I didn't really... Again, why I didn't even mention it <laughs> in the synopsis. It's like, okay, it's sacred to him. Next. And that's all you needed. And, and, yeah. but, but what I'm getting at is, is this real? This story, is it real? Or is it something that the Dura sisters made up and you've somehow bought hook, line, and sinker that, that all this is, is real? I, I don't know. It was the whole – the whole link of of the Dura sisters and the aliens and why this planet is sacred seems so convoluted that it kind of took me out of the story a little bit. Oh, well, it's a little convoluted, but wasn't it Malik who was telling them that story, or do I have that wrong? Yeah, no, the the okay. leader Malik, yeah, yeah. So, but so he's, he's also he's buying whatever Duras is telling him. Right. Yeah, but. But they're levering, they're leveraging the idea that it's a, it's a the Duras sisters are leveraging the idea that it is a sacred planet to the uh, Myvac or whatever the heck their names are, the aliens. Right. So, at least that part of it. So the Duras sisters already knew this story, or they apparently they got this story from the the security chief or uh, general or whatever who who's in league with her. I don't know how they found out about it. That's one of those little handy little details they didn't bother telling you about. Mm. But obviously, they found out enough about it that they were able to leverage it in um, in getting them to attack. And, and and really, in the end, maybe it was the sisters who contacted the uh, the military commander. I forgot what his name is, and they started negotiating on a deal and maybe that military commander of the Maleks said, hey, you know, 
you got a nice little powerful ship there. Is there something we could do about? Uh, you, know, you don't know how the how the conversation went, but um, it must have been some. I mean, something like that would make more sense than the Duras systems just magically knowing all this stuff before their first contact with this uh, these Myvac exactly. folks. Exactly. So you don't know how they did it, but um, they did it, and uh, they did it very covertly. Apparently. Since no one knew they were even in the in the picture, <laughs> which is interesting because don't they have to go th- past the station to get into the war- to get into the gra- gamma quadrant? But they could have just piggybacked off of somebody else while they were cloaked. I don't know. Yeah, there you go. That could have happened, but definitely no one seemed to know they were around. Right. Yeah. So uh, my last comment, because I really don't have a lot to say about this one. Uh, I thought it was good. So I don't really have a lot of nitpicks. Um, but the cover shows this armada of little alien ships, right? Right. And the first scene is these little alien ships just swarming a outpost and killing the colony. Right. But then then they just this, – this whole armada of little ships is so pointless later on. They can't even take down the shields of a bird of prey. They can't. I mean, it's just like, what's the point of the little ships? I mean, you make it look very intimidating, and then they're really kind of a joke that, you know, you could outrun them. They could fire all day and never bring down your shields. Uh, It just, I don't know. I thought there was some potential there with, you know, you always think of the big ship versus the little tiny ships. Yeah. uh, Which one would win? And it's kind of, I thought, wasted a little bit. Yeah, you know, it's I, the whole Star Wars, <laughs> Star Trek mentality. Would a whole bunch of little fighter craft, could that take out uh, the Enterprise or something like that? And I thought maybe we'd get a little of that here, but we don't. Yeah, and it all comes down to weapon technology versus shield technology. And these guys are not advanced enough to be able to overcome the Klingon shields. Right. Uh, a la Independence Day, if I but, may make another reference. <laughs> But they can just completely destroy a Federation colony, which you would think well, but, would be given some sort of defensive capabilities. Well, you would hope, you wouldn't you? I mean, you've got that little control room or something, but really, I mean, if they truly did not have any kind of shielding, then, yeah, anybody firing weapons could take out a building, right? Right. So it all, again, comes down to shielding. Even primitive, relatively primitive ships with not that great of weapons, could take out buildings. I mean... Right. Right. And then then they, they do have primitive ships. They have a primitive space fleet. They have a primitive armada. Right. And yet, they say they've already conquered everybody in their, their, their region of space. Right. Almost sounds like they've <clears throat> conquered the, the Gamma Quadrant. Well, no. I mean, the Gamma Quadrant is pretty big. Yeah, but I mean, you've you you he, he kind of acts like that at, towards the end. The leader's like, "But you've already conquered everybody. Why would you want more? You know, or whatever." Yeah, I forgot well. what he says. But you, then you think, you know, the Dominions out there, and yep. if these yeah. guys can't even take down one yeah. ship's shields, how are they holding holding off the Dominion? Well, I think. The, I think the Dominion just leaves them alone. I mean, look at the the Alpha Quadrant. 
you've got uh, Klingon space, you got Romulan space, you got Federation space, you got you know all these different races, and plus beyond all this, there's still more space. So that isn't necessarily claimed by anybody. So you know, I mean, th- these guys could be operating over here on the side in such a unimportant area of the Gamma Quadrant that the uh, the Dominion just hasn't bothered with them yet. Mm. But you think if the Dominion did want to, they could take these guys over like in a snap of the fingers? You would think so. One yeah. one ship could take them out. Exactly. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Right. Hmm. Yeah, and and quite frankly, uh, I don't care how many Tie Fighters they want to put up against the Enterprise, they will never get through those shields. Now unless they now, unless they now. got visors, Jordy's visor. Oh, those codes. <laughs> good point. Good point. <laughs> uh, now a Star Destroyer versus the Enterprise—that'd be more interesting. That's something I'd pay to see. Exactly. J.J. Abrams, make it happen. <laughs> did you see that comic or did you see that uh that web video that had the enterprise you know enterprise or star trek versus star wars where uh-huh. the enterprise goes up against uh a star destroyer and takes them out easily you know, enterprise d feels all kind of hoity-toity until they come up against the death star <laughs> <laughs> no i haven't seen that yeah it's a web video they just is it they just is cut it? stuff together oh, okay okay and then did, did little voiceovers and cut stuff together and, you know. Right. And have to you look know, that some up. composites showing the two, you know, the two styles of ships from the two different franchises on the same scene. It's, it's cute. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this, this book, but, I mean, I really didn't have that, a lot of comments either. Hmm. Okay. All right, it was worth a read. I enjoyed it. Just, uh... Yeah. It did seem like a good sequel to Hearts and Mind. Right. So it could have been like Hearts and Mind number five, but it could have been. Said it's a it's a one one off. Right. And I well, like I, the ties in with uh, the Dura sisters. Right. So what were you gonna say? I will comment about the extra feature they have at the end, where they have an interview with uh, Michael Westmore, mm-hmm. who did uh, a lot of the makeup for uh, Next Gen, um, and I suppose for some of the later series too, doing a lot of the Star Trek aliens. Right. So uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, and and one of the things he was saying, he got to start in the business uh, on an apprenticeship to Universal Studios, where right. you know he learned how to do makeup and stuff like that. There, it's like, well, how cool! Could you know, you know, I you mean I could have been on an apprenticeship with Universal Studios rather than writing code my entire career. <laughs> wow, that's that'd be great. I did like how he pointed out it's a position that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And, and what was that? I mean, was that because of Universal's old experience with like monsters and stuff, the old monster movies and stuff? You know, why? I mean, that would have been later, beyond the 30s and early 40s, when they had those kind of movies were big right. for Universal. It's like I wonder when. I, I, I'm just wondering why they had apprenticeships such as that around. Uh, I guess they must have had that kind of uh, demand for it whenever that time period was. Well, I think they've always made movies that needed some sort of creature effects, right? Uh, well, I don't remember any Warren Beatty movies with that. Or, I mean, a lot of the more serious movies, they don't have that kind of thing. But, yeah. 
Well, you got to think. I suppose even old man makeup and stuff like that. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But how often does that come up? But yeah, but when it does come up, you want it to look good. So, right there, you go. Yep. Okay, I just thought it was an interesting interview. Yeah, I I, uh, I didn't finish it. I'll be honest with you. I just kind of skimmed over it. Well, quite frankly, me too. I didn't finish the whole thing, but I, the parts I read were pretty interesting. All right, cool. All right, well, uh, anything else? Nothing else on that book. All right, so next week, uh, the 90s issue 61, episode 61, will be the uh, the before-mentioned Deep Space Nine Next Generation crossover, 1, 2, and 3. So we'll do the fourth one in episode 126. Cool. So, so was, was that a DC publication or a Malibu publication? It's actually both. So. Ah. And it's really confusing because there's a there's a Malibu uh, comic and it's called Nick, uh, Deep Space Nine and Next Generation crossover yeah. issue one and two, and then there's a DC Comics Star Trek the Next Generation Deep Space Nine crossover issue one and two. So they're both issued one and two, oh. and then only if you look in the corner does it say like, you know, it says like. One of four, two of four, three of four, four of four. Oh. And, and so I think the first one is DC number one, and then the second one is Malibu number one, then the third one is DC number two, and the fourth one is Malibu number two. So they're alternating. Oh, my God, that's even yeah, worse. They alternate. Oh, man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's um, the writer is Michael Jan Friedman and – Oh, I forgot who the the Malibu art, uh, writer. writer is. We'll find out next week. <laughs> cool. Sounds good. Looking forward to it. All right. And then uh, we don't have any expanded universe stuff to talk about today since these were specials. So we're good to go. Let cool. everybody go about their business. Exactly. Uh, go, with... go catch another episode or go catch another viewing of Star Trek Into Darkness, which is in theaters. That's great. Or maybe playing the video game that's out there. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do, even though it's not going to have – it did not get good uh, reviews. Yeah, and I have played the first um, – I, I played it for about 15 minutes, and then I had to go off and do other things. But Yeah, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to enjoy it just because it's going to have Chris Pine and Zach oh, yeah. Quinto and – Yeah, Kirk and Spock adventure, very cool. And Gorn, even though it's different Gorn. Exactly. Um, and the only thing I must say about it, because I, I, I mean – so here's my mini review. The graphics are okay, not the best I've ever seen. And quite frankly, even though you can obviously tell it's Quinto and Pine, they're rendered, you know, that there is obvious it's the actors. They look like cadavers to me. Oh. I mean, the, the, the coloring does not look good to me. And when they move their lips, it's, uh, it's not that good. That's, oh. that's my mini review. Um, yeah. All right. Well, I, 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 in the 15 minutes I played it, I hadn't got to the point that I could really fire, you know, shoot at things yet. Oh, but, really? Um, <laughs> but because there, there are things you need to go through and like figure out stuff. So there are little puzzles, kind of things. And and it, it there's no tutorial at the front. You just got to figure it out, which isn't that bad if you're used to first-person shooter kind of things. It's just that if you aren't, it's like I can see people being lost, you know, figuring out the controls. Hmm. So there you well, go. It, it's it's a co-op game, so if you ever want to uh, play together, let me know. Or if anybody listening wants to play with uh, with me, I won't I won't volunteer, Ken. 
But, uh, you know, I've gotten pretty much every Star Trek game they've come out with. So if anybody yeah. wants to fire up a, a uh, you know, Star Trek, um, what was that one? Legacy. There's an online mode of that if anybody wants to do a little ship-on-ship ship action. Just you know, <laughs> drop, drop us a note. Right. So and, and, of course, you've got the Xbox version of the game. I do, yes. So you'd have to be on the Xbox platform, have a gold membership. Yeah. But yeah. if anybody really wants to play, I'm sure I'll grab the other one. Just okay. for you guys. Just for you guys. Oh, wow. Yes. And gals. Whoever. That's, that's good. That's good. <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, let's wrap it up so that I can get to playing. Sounds good. So All thanks right. for joining us, everybody. Take care, everybody. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name stcomic. Second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review.